Okay, well today we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 39. Uh, we were looking at Joseph things, his dreams, his interaction with his brothers, his being taken into captivity, his being sold into slavery. And then last week in chapter 38, we shifted for a bit to Judah and his uh, unusual experiences are maybe very usual but different than we might have hoped for children of Jacob. Uh, he, he watches Joseph be captured and sold into slavery, takes part in that in various ways, but uh, they, he participates in uh, seeing that uh, uh, Jacob is tricked uh, into believing that Joseph is dead. Joseph, Judah then moves away He's visiting an Adulamite friend named Hira, notices a Canaanite woman, and develops a relationship with her. And out of that, we see three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And uh, he takes a wife for Ur, first woman that's named of this Canaanite community that he's become a part of. And that woman is Tamar. Ur is evil in the sight of the Lord. We don't get any real picture as to what he saw, but he takes Ur's life. And then we get into the whole Leverite marriage thing, Leverite marriage. And so he sends Onan to be with Jacob. I'm sorry, Judah sends Onan to be uh, with her to help provide for the children and the lineage that she should have to uh, see her through life. And he will not impregnate her. And so God takes his life, and so Judah decides that maybe this scheme of finding a wife for Tamar isn't working out very well for his family, and uh, he says, ah, my third son's too young. You go be a widow in your father's house. When the time is right, then, then we will pick it up where we've stopped here. Well, years go by, Judah's wife dies. Uh, Judah goes up to a sheet shearing. Once again, he's with his Canaanite friend Hira and uh, they go up to Timnah um, uh, someone tells Tamar about all that and so she sets aside her widow's garb and takes upon the garb of a prostitute parks in the city gate along the way and Jacob engages her as a prostitute he did not recognize her and the price agreed upon is a young goat but he doesn't have a young goat with him so he leaves a pledge his signet, his cord, and his staff. <clears throat> and then he sends Hira back with the goat, intending to make the exchange for what was pledged. That doesn't go so well. Hira's asking all around, and he cannot find this prostitute. And Jacob says, forget it. They're going to laugh at us. It's an awkward thing to going around looking for a prostitute that nobody even knew was there. And so three months go by, Tamar showing. Word gets to... Uh, Judah that his previous daughter-in-law or daughter-in-law uh, through the Leverite system is pregnant and he says bring her out and burn her well on the way to being brought out she sends a message to Judah saying um, the person that made me pregnant owns these things which of course was him and we see this turn in Judah recognizing his own sin, including primarily withholding his third son. He says, declares, she is more righteous than I, cancels the, the uh, death penalty. And then she gives birth to twins. Tamar does. Zara gets the scarlet thread, the scarlet thread to designate he's the firstborn. But Perez actually is born prior as Zara uh, retreats from being born. And we see then, we spent a fair, little bit of time looking at the fact that out of Perez is the lineage of Jesus. And Judah is significant. As a matter of fact, what is Jesus' one of his titles? We read it out of the book of Revelation. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so Judah is not a small player in the big picture. But the events take us now back to Joseph today. And so most of the interaction throughout the rest of the book of Genesis is going to be about how Joseph uh, is established in Egypt and how God takes the whole family to Egypt and then they uh, are there for about 400 years and that sets up the exodus but we're going to finish out this book of 
Genesis in the last 10 chapters here or so, 11, with seeing him established in Egypt along with the family. So with that said, we're looking at chapter 39 today. And so let's first of all read Genesis 39, 1 through 18. And so looking for a volunteer to read that for us. Go ahead, Alan. Thank you. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt in Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. <clears throat> the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was, the, he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he had, did to <coughs> succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my, master's, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he, put, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is, not greater in, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was, was, in the, was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she <coughs> called to him the men of the household and said to them, See, he has brought, us, <coughs> brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he, as he heard that I had lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Thank you. So <clears throat> these are the stories in chapter 39. I say the word stories, but the accounts in 39 are things that we've often heard growing up in the Sunday school classes, and it's part of the, the story of Joseph and certainly is a, um, a worthwhile to stop and take a look at. We have heard these things before, but in verse 1 we see that Potiphar purchases Joseph as a slave, and uh, he is an important person says he's the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. That would be a highly trusted position by Pharaoh. So he was a prominent person in, in the government. And he was sold by Ishmaelites. And that's an interesting thing. We didn't talk about it a lot before. But as these Ishmaelites bring Joseph in, we see in the chapter he's even called a Hebrew. We'll talk about that more later. But uh, they had to know this, this is a descendant of... The, you know, the Ishmaelites are the children of Ishmael, the descendants of Ishmael. They had to know that they shared a common ancestor of Abraham, and this is from the competitive uh, lineage, the lineage that God put the promise through of Isaac. And so here is one of his, and they now have the ability to sell him as a slave. Uh, 
probably not anything particular about this story in terms of what occurs, but it's certainly at least an interesting thing to realize that, that these folks had some common ancestry there. And in verse 2, we see a phrase that is extremely important, and that is, the Lord was with Joseph. <clears throat> what does that mean? Favor. Favor? Absolutely. Uh, those aren't just words that talk about the omnipresence character of God um, then and both, then, both then and now, but that he is there uh, receiving the blessing of God. God is, is involved in this account of what is happening. It's important to God what goes on, and he is there uh, keeping his eyes on his presence with Joseph while Joseph is going through all of these things that we're going to be looking at not only in this chapter, but in the rest of the book of Genesis. And so what does it mean in the eyes of Joseph? Now that's a little bit of an obscure question and probably not fair because well, what's he trying to get at there might be hard to see. But, but we don't get, throughout this whole chapter, we don't get anything directly that tells us what Joseph is aware of, what Joseph is thinking, what his uh, general mood is. We do get a, a very vital speech a little later where he talks about some of what's going on. But <clears throat> if you think about what Joseph has gone through, uh, captured by his brothers, naked in a pit, uh, sold to Ishmaelite, sold to Potiphar, and then, then here is Joseph. And the fact that it says the Lord was with Joseph, I think, tells us an awful lot about um, what is going on in God's being with Joseph in that uh, Joseph seems to be and is an excellent servant here. And this is part of the presence of the Holy Spirit, of God being there with him, uh, is Joseph, what's his level of awareness? It, it isn't told to us, but I think we can tell, we will tell more before we're done about how Joseph is working these things out uh, for himself. <clears throat> In verse 2, it also says that Joseph was very successful. He was, he, he, he was, uh, let me get my eyes to focus here. Uh, he, he was successful and the house of his master, the Egyptian. And so what he did worked well. And in verse 3, what did Joseph's master see? This is pretty important. He saw that the Lord was with Joseph. And so Joseph is not just there being a good servant, uh, being a good worker or even a good uh, slave if you will but Joseph is there being a testimony for the Lord and so there is we're not told how it's made but there's a connection <clears throat> known about Joseph that it was Yahweh that was Joseph's God and driver and was a part of his presence there so it was obvious to the master, maybe obvious is too strong a word, I don't know, but certainly visible to the master that Yahweh himself is blessing Joseph and what he's doing. And that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Now, <clears throat> that's not quite like having the goose that's laying the golden egg, but it's because that's a fairy tale. This is for real. And Potiphar is seeing that as Joseph is there in the home, whatever I ask him to do, boy, does that work well. So what's a wise man, even a wise man in the, in the eyes of the world, uh, even if he's not a believer, what's he going to do? Well, I'm going to give Joseph opportunity to let this prosperity move throughout my whole household, through everything I possibly can, and I'll keep him busy, and he will be bringing great things to my house. So in verse 4, Joseph found favor in his sight 
and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned, and he put him in charge. And so Potiphar expands Joseph's responsibilities and dominion uh, as broad as he can, including everything that he had as possessions in his home and whatever it was. And so in verse 5, it came about that he was overseer um, from that time forward in his house, and the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So in other words, as the Lord blessed Joseph, his way of blessing him was to bless the one who owned him, is a fair way of saying it, his master. And so all of this success is is, is growing and it's working and things are coming together well for everybody. And it extended beyond even just the household to all of his properties. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge and with him and there and did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. So here is Potiphar has found himself a good place to be with regard to the cares of his household. Uh, we don't know that any effect on his business of being the captain of the guard for Pharaoh, but certainly at home it says all he had to worry about was what he ate. And that probably was as simple as putting his order in for the next day on what he wanted to eat. And so he's got a carefree life at home, and it's pretty clear that he was being pretty loose in his care for his home. And that shows up as we move on through this. Um, Now we also see in verse 6 that Joseph was also blessed physically. Um, He was handsome in form and appearance. Uh, He had been doing his workouts or whatever, but the Lord had blessed him. And he was uh, an attractive man. I think that's a fair way of of interpreting what's written there. And so in verse 7, we see the beginning of the downfall of the relationship between Joseph and Potiphar. And it comes about with Potiphar's wife. Um, She looked with desire at Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, Joseph has an excellent response to that. He says, uh, he refused, and he said to her, excuse me, behold with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he's put all that he owns in my charge. Pay attention, this is where I'm at. This is what he's given me. There is no one greater in this house than I, in verse 9. He is it, and by the way, that includes the wife, apparently, and he has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. You are his personal, I'm going to use the word possession, but in terms of relationship, uh, that relationship is the one thing that Joseph is not allowed to intrude into because that would be an intrusion, would be a number of other things that would be inappropriate. But that's the, the one place that Potiphar, of course, had not put Joseph into. But his next question is very significant. How then could I do this great evil and sin against? And who would he be sinning against? God. He doesn't bring up Potiphar again. Joseph clearly is living his life out mindful and intentional, knowing who God is and what it means to serve him and to not offend him and to be in a place of obedience to God. And so he's not willing to sacrifice his relationship with God, violating his relationship with Potiphar and sinning with his wife. His issue, he could have said, Potiphar. Would Potiphar not have fit into that sentence? He would be sinning against Potiphar. So we do get some insight here into Joseph's motivations, what he's thinking about, and why he's living things out the way he is. And so you would hope, if you were Joseph, that would be the end of it. 
Crisis came, crisis averted, and crisis dealt with. But no, the crisis continues to happen. In verse 10, and she spoke to Joseph day after day. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So he was keeping his distance. Right, right answer, right thing to do. So in a just world, do we live in a just world? No. In a just world, that would have worked. In a just world, the speech he gave her would have worked because they did not share this mutual desire together. Now it happened, though, in verse 11, one day he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were inside. Oops. They weren't there. The shield was dropped. Not from Joseph's perspective, from her. She caught him by the garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. He did just what we're told to do with regard to sin. He ran. Unfortunately, he ran without his garment. Excuse me. When she saw that he'd left his garment and went outside, what did she do? Now she wanted witnesses. Men, men, get in here. And what did she say? See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us. Now, who's she accusing right here? Potiphar. He had a little problem with respect from his wife, didn't he? In so many multiple ways. And who had he brought in? A what? That's really interesting. How big is the Hebrew nation at this point? Not very big. And yet they're known as Hebrews, as the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the sons of the man chosen of God. They are seen as a people, which is pretty amazing because primarily what we have is a man. Now, he's a very wealthy man, Jacob. And he has many people in his, in his entourage, in his, in his influence. He's very successful. There's a lot to what he has. But in terms of Hebrews, there's a very limited number here. Um, a man with 12 sons, probably a wife or two living. Some grandsons we found out about in chapter 38 and maybe others. This is not a large clan even. Uh, We would hesitate today to look at any one of our lineages and say, oh, here's a new nation. But they're already recognized as a people. And he brought them into us to make sport of us. What is she saying, make sport of us? Abuse the position. Abuse the position. Yeah, think little of us. Use for their own pleasure. Make fun of us. Is it kind of like saying, you put this hillbilly in charge of us? I, I, I think there's a little bit of that, but I, I think it might even be a little bit better to twist it the other way. He's treating us like hillbillies. Okay. Now, I, take that wherever you want to go. I mean, there's not an exact answer to my question, <coughs> but it's pretty clear that she's saying, you know, he, he's not respecting us, and he's abusing us, abusing his position. He's not being like he ought to be. And he came in to lie with me, and I screamed. She didn't start screaming until he didn't lie with her, but that's the truth, and she wasn't going to tell that. And when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So in other words, she made it Joseph's attempt in her lie to these men. And she wasn't done yet. She laid the garment beside her until his master came home. And she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. And so the stage is set for the disruption of the relationship between Potiphar and Joseph. And to some extent... um, His reaction from an earthly perspective makes some sense, but nonetheless, let's read verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Now I'm looking for another volunteer. 
Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended his kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Okay, so when Potiphar heard his wife's story, how did he react? What, it, how, what emotion came out? We'll get there. Anger. And out of that anger, what did he do? Prison. Threw him in prison. And this is kind of an open-ended situation for Joseph now. I mean, there isn't a prison. I mean, this is just an official said, lock him up. <clears throat> and so here's Joseph locked up in this situation. If we were to stop and think about Potiphar for a minute, was Potiphar very wise here? What did he know about Joseph? God was with him. He recognized it. And so when this crisis happened, what happened to what he had already seen in Joseph? It continued. But it didn't matter. I mean, it continued in the sense God stayed with Joseph, but in Potiphar's mind, that wiped the slate clean. All he knows is <clears throat> that this Hebrew man is being accused by his wife of trying to take liberties. And so he gets angry and takes this highly successful man who'd been highly successful for him, that he saw God was with him, and threw him in jail. And from the standpoint of a worldly outlook on this, it would be easy to say, well, if he was convinced of it, it's understandable. Um, but it did show a lack of insight and wisdom to say, I mean, one of the things that doesn't get told in the story, at least, is, Joseph, what happened here? And so what would be really fun to me if it was included in the account of Genesis is so after Potiphar threw Joseph in jail, what happened in Potiphar's house? Um, did all of the blessing go away? Did he go broke? Did he lose his job? What happened would be fun to know, but we don't get to know that. All we know is that God is with Joseph, and Joseph isn't in Potiphar's house anymore, so I would guess things went sideways to some extent, but that's just a guess. Have a question. Yes? It makes me wonder, because like, a man of that kind of notoriety, having his wife accuse a slave of that kind of crime... Yes, that's true. If this isn't maybe the first time that this type of interaction has occurred, you know, there's we can't make any definitive comments. No, I mean, there's lots of wonderments here. I mean, clearly, she was his wife in formal relationship, and and I don't want to read more into it than is there. But one of the things you can look at is all he worried about at home was eating. So. That could be, I'm not saying is, but could be an indication that he kind of checked out on home life. He showed up, ate good meals, and went back to work. And so the relationship with his wife, now we, sh- we shouldn't lay our culture on top of his, but that would certainly seem to be neglectful uh, as a possibility. Um, <clears throat> it's easy to look at this whole situation with Potiphar and his wife as, uh, from a, from a uh, human interaction standpoint, but... I think as we put this together, a question that we should ask somewhere along the way is, so did God's plan get diverted when this situation with Potiphar's wife happened? No. Did, was God surprised when Joseph was accused? No. This is, we can clearly see, I mean, we're already starting to look back from chapters we haven't covered, but we can clearly see that this is all God's orchestration of his plan for Joseph to put him in prison, to put him in a position 
where he's going to continue to have God with him and God prospering him and God placing him just where he wants him to be. And so now we find Joseph in a place of confinement. He's in the king, in with the king's prisoners. But as we continue to see in verse 21, the Lord wasn't left behind. The Lord was with Joseph. He continued to extend his kindness toward him. And he gave him favor in the eyes of the jailer. And the chief jailer put his trust, put Joseph in verse 22, in charge of all the prisoners of the jail. Whatever was done, Joseph was the one responsible, not meaning in a negative way, but in a positive way. As things happened in the jail, as things were taken care of properly, whatever improvements were made because of jo while Joseph was there, it was because of Joseph. And so the jailer we just trusted Joseph completely. In verse 23, we see that the jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's direction. And why didn't he? He was succeeding. I mean, one of the, one of the rules of life when things are working the way you want them to, don't try to change it. I mean, that's just, you know, when things are going right, let them go right. Um, and uh, so here's things going in a good way. The Lord is with him, caused everything to prosper. And um, so here's a question I want to ask you. Were good things happening to Joseph or bad? And then I'm going to ask you, what's your definition of good? Let's go back and answer those questions. Were good things happening to Joseph? What's that? Yes. Yes. Well, and that, that's a that's a good question, and and there's and, and I'll bring it I'll, I'll, if I can keep my thoughts all lined up. I'll bring something back to that in a minute. But what were the good things that were happening to Joseph? God was with him. Okay, God was with him. Whatever he did worked. What other good things were happening to Joseph? The Lord showed him steadfast love. The Lord showed him His love. There's some things you're leaving off this list that belong on the list. He didn't have to do with Potiphar's wife anymore. He, yeah, that was a blessing, wasn't it? Yeah, got away from her. That's absolutely right. So was it a good thing that his brothers captured him and threw him in the pit? It wasn't, but it worked for the good. Well, okay, it worked for good. Work for Joseph's good. What's that? I think you can say that there is good and bad. Yeah. So, so let's let's change the words, and this will get a little easier. Were there unpleasant things happening to Joseph? But in its unpleasantness, can we say that it was evil? Ah, we'll get to that too at the end of the book as well. But we can do it right now to a point. We know where this is going, right? So would it have been better if Joseph had not been captured and thrown in the pit? No, because it didn't happen. Well, no, because it didn't happen, but... Providence, like he ordains the perfect, the good, the cheapest good of all things. These things, in reality, were good for Joseph. Being captured, being thrown in the pit, being sold into slavery, and now going into prison... Um, we would not look at it from a world's perspective and say this is just and good. But if you look at it from God's perspective, at what moment is God losing control? Does God cause bad things to happen? No, it's part of a larger tapestry than that, isn't it? And here is Joseph going through things that we don't really get. He never stands up and says, it's okay, I know God's with me. And he also doesn't stand up in these accounts and say, why is this happening to me? I'm trying to serve the Lord the best I can and look what results I'm getting. And go over to Psalm 103. I want to read verses 15 through 22. Psalm 103, 15 to 22.
And this is a psalm of David. And we're going to read out of this psalm. It's a great psalm. We're going to cherry pick a section of verses here, 15 to 22. I would, I would really encourage you sometime when you're looking at the events of the world with some level of concern, go back and just read the whole psalm. But we're, we're going to look at, at 15 to 22 and, and see how David is um, taking things. This is the, the title of this is uh, Praise for the Lord, Lord's Mercies, um, the New American Standard. That's how they title this psalm. And David is certainly praising God in many ways here. But let's, let's start with verse 15 and read through the end of the psalm. Who can do that for us? As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of, the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So this is David's response, and certainly um, David is in a different position than many in life. I mean, he's a king. And he's got the Lord blessing him, and we could say maybe he's thinking about all these blessings that come from being a king. But let's look at this and look at the words carefully. Beginning there in verse 15, it says, As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind blows and passes over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. What did he just say about what it means to be a human being living on this planet? Life short? Numbered? Blooms and it fades. Quickly. And, you know, I don't know how many funerals I've been to where somebody says, well, this person will live on forever in our memories. And I understand the thought, and I understand the intention, and, and in one sense, for those of us that are believers, there's truth to that, but it won't be memories on this side of life, will it? I mean, I can't go further back than my great-grandfather. Um, um, on my mom's side, he had a dad that died when he was 16, and I've heard some things about um, that dad that my, great -grand that my grandfather had. But I never met him, and to say that I remember him isn't even possible. And so David is putting in perspective, a good perspective here, what it means to be a human being on this planet. We think everything we do is important and significant and all of those things. And in a way it is. And he's going to talk about that. But when we start talking about me and my influence and how people are going to think of me forever, there's not very many characters in history that get thought about very often and half of them are evil and half of them aren't. Half of them are more on the righteous side. And I said half. I have no idea if that's the right perspective. But we've got just as many characters that we're glad got put down as we do that rose up to put people down, right? But, verse 17, but, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. He goes from, David does here, the brevity of life and I'm going to say the insignificance of your life and mine to the absolute, glorious, total excellence and importance and significance of what it means to be one who has placed their faith in God. We would say in Christ for our salvation because that loving kindness of the Lord is not brief. It's from everlasting. It's from eternity to eternity. It never ends. Now, for those of you that want to, I went to eternity because we relate to that a little better. That word everlasting really doesn't mean eternity. It means from now and forevermore. A little bit different word. But nonetheless, once it starts, it's there forever. To those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. We're in a new covenant through Christ. 
But for those in the covenant, life is not insignificant, but it's still short. And the earthly part isn't very important. Outside of, it's in this earthly existence, we join the covenant, we become one with Christ, and we begin to be his servants, and then he takes us in as adopted children, and we're his children forever. As Jesus said, he who the sum sets free is free indeed. And so we become joint heirs with Christ. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. I'm going to tell you we can find it in a lot of places in the scriptures. A few poignant ones. One's in Romans 8. All things work together for good to those who love God, to the called ones according to his purpose. He said the same thing right here. Talking about his grace, his righteousness, his loving kindness from everlasting to everlasting. And he has established his throne and his sovereignty rules over all. When these events are happening in Joseph's life, this comes out of the sovereignty of God. And we see here that God is with Joseph. God's living this out with him in the sense that he's right there prospering him and seeing that his purposes are met, God's purposes. And the way that he's going to accomplish his purposes are not all filled with pleasantness for Joseph. And I'll bet you can say the same thing, maybe in a much diminished way, about your own life. The way that God led you to where he wanted you to be and put you in the place he wanted you to be in probably wasn't always moments filled with pleasantness. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, in verse 20, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you hosts who serve him in doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his life, in all places of his domain. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And Joseph might have trouble saying those words now, but he's going to say something very similar that gets quoted by Moses in the latter chapters of Genesis. And so I think the challenge for us, if we were there and had some authority watching those brothers capture Joseph and throw him in the pit, what would we have wanted to do? And what might we indeed have done if we had that authority? Stop it! And yet... This is right in the center of the very things that God is orchestrating to take care of this future nation that he promised would be like the sands of the sea and pro prospered in many, many ways. And so my challenge to us is that we live in a world where you can see the tensions are built, are they not? Do you think the next 50 years of life for the people that are living in this world are going to be all pleasant? I don't think so from a human perspective. We can see all those tensions out there, and as they come and as things go in ways different than what we would plan and what we would want, I'm going to suggest to you that this psalm is still active. God is still sovereign over absolutely everything. And we may be asked to live through some very unpleasant things. And we need to approach it like Joseph did. Whatever he asked me to do, whatever position I get put in, I'm going to be considering how I can keep myself from sinning against God. Not letting the fact that I'm thrown in an unpleasant circumstance change all the realities and truths of living. Because those realities and truths of living come from an eternal God and are still important. And Joseph lived that out pretty well from what we can see. And I think 
literally we did. The Lord was with him, and I think the Lord and his spirit directed him. I don't think there's any doubt <coughs> that Joseph was a good person to be around. Unless you're Mrs. Potiphar. Everybody else just thought the world of him, respected him. I mean, he was still a slave. Now he's in prison, so he's still a prisoner. But they recognize there's something there, and he's trustworthy, and he is influential and gets things done. Let's go over to Romans chapter 11. Speak up. Yes. Oh, people are going to sin. My grandfather told me that I had to stay with him until 16. We stood there at the great glass window of his house and watched the tornado come down in Independence, Missouri. <coughs> we watched that tornado come down on the other side of the car. The next day, he took me down to part of Kansas City. The lower income and whatever. And there was broken glass everywhere and busted cars and the old brick down on the sidewalk and everywhere. And he says, What do you think? And he was really mean. You know, and of course I said, You know, we saw the tornado come this way. He's going, The tornado didn't come through you. It went north and took out the power line. So when it got dark, the people rioted, rocked, and broke the solar windows and robbed them. People caused that damage, not the tornado. It did indirectly, but the people. Uh, he was just wheeling me. Well, and I'm kind of glad you said that because. Learned. Yep. Because when I was talking about unpleasant things, I'm not talking about events of nature. There may be some of those. But look at what people are going to do that are going to make this world an unpleasant place to live. I mean, you're right. It's What's going to make this difficult and unpleasant is the sins of the people around us. And honestly, some of our own. We're not sin-free. But yet, we need to be like Joseph, determined, intentional about not sinning against God in the midst of the many, many sins of others that make our life pretty miserable sometimes, or at least have the potential to do that someday, up through it, including um, murder and all those things that might go along with how people are treated in the world that we see. Look at Romans 11, 33 through 36. Who can read that for us? of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? For who has been his counselor? For who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Think of the depth of the wisdom and knowledge of God as he is leading Joseph through these events to set the stage for what's going to happen in Egypt. Apart from the fact it's been recorded for us and we can look back to it as a historical event, we would never ever be able to put together what's happening here real time. If we were living through this real time, day by day, as a flea on Joseph's back, we would not be able to see that there's a, there's a plan being executed here, would we? And so God's wisdom and knowledge are deep. And that next one, your version said inscrutable, unfathomable in the New Testament, in the New American Standard. Uh, beyond finding out, I think that's New King James or King James. But his ways are beyond finding out. While they're happening, we, we don't get it. We can't get it. It's just beyond us. 
And then it quotes this from the Old Testament. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? I think we're over in Job, but I didn't look it up. Who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? In other words, there's no equal with God. Nobody's out here doing something where God owes us something. It's all about God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And in many situations in life, both in successes and in failures, I've had to look at these verses and apply them directly to what's going on, both personally and abroad. We can't see how God is weaving together history. There is a person he gave a glimpse of it to, and that was Daniel. And when Daniel saw the end times that were coming the prophecies that God was giving him, the latter one, he said, you don't get to write this one down. Daniel was physically ill for a fairly long period of time. He couldn't even take seeing it. There are going to be some very, very difficult times. Which ones are you going to live through? Which ones am I going to live through? I don't know. But this is a part of God's plan to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And we ought not be surprised that he creates turmoil for a purpose. And if we were to go look at the book of Revelation, we could see one part of that purpose is that those Israelites, the Jewish descendants, will look upon him whom they pierced and know he was Messiah. And many, some, 120,000 witnesses, will be saved and save others with them. And that is more important than any difficulties people have to live through to get from here to there. And so today as we we look at this, we even see some things that that Jesus said. Um, If we went to the Sermon on the Mount, we got just a few minutes left, so let me just, you know these words, we don't have to look it up and read them. In Matthew 5, beginning in verse 38, Jesus says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the person who would bring evil to you. He who slaps your right cheek, give him your left. Is Jesus out of step with the world? Yeah. He's out of step with the emotions we're likely to have as we suffer through some difficult thing. Does this line up a bit with what Joseph has done? Yeah, it's not a direct correlation, but he's there trying to do good for people who are doing evil to him. If a person wants to sue you and take your shirt, give him your coat too. If he forces you to go one mile, go two. Give to him who asks. He goes on in verse 43 to say, you've you uh, love your neighbor and hate your, na- your enemy. That's what you've heard. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. Wow, you want to align yourself with God? Pray for those that persecute you. He causes the sun to rise on good and evil. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Therefore, verse 48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The calling to live the Christian life parallels a lot with what's going on with Joseph. It starts with a trust in the sovereignty of God. And it continues with intentional, thoughtful obedience to God. It, the, living the Christian life keeps us attentive to this is a bad situation Everything I want to do is wrong. How can I not sin? How can I treat those who are persecuting me with the grace of God? How can I be a testimony right here, right now? How can I love my enemies? I certainly can pray for them. How can I be perfect as my Heavenly Father was perfect? He showed his love toward us in that while we were yet enemies, he died for us. 
And so I think as we look at Joseph, it's a cool story. And we can get excited about what God's doing, but only because we know the rest of the story already. If you were hearing this for the first time, you wouldn't go, look how God is blessing Joseph. We're hearing our lives for the first time. We can't see the end from the beginning, but God does and can and directs us. And so as we go through the days ahead, maybe they'll all be full of joy and easy. Yeah, probably not. But even if they're easy, this is what it means to live the Christian life. Comments, thoughts? Yes, yeah, looking back, and it said that he was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery, and he was 30 when Pharaoh got him out of prison. Mm-hmm. It was 13 years when he was... Wasn't a week or two here or there, was it? Yeah. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yep. Quite an enduring man. Yes, sir? Yeah, so this kind of... Um, reflects a little bit on, on Jacob and, and his relation with Laban. Mm-hmm. Um, although that particular relationship, I think, even applies more to us because Jacob, it, it seems like Joseph was 100% in line with, with God. Jacob faltered. <laughs> Jacob went in different ways, but still it came down to the fact that, you know, this is bad things that happened to Jacob, you know, having, you know, getting deceived and all that Yep, and and they all go back to the promises that through this line we are going to, you know, um, basically complete the, the covenant and everything, so, saving those who uh, in line with the covenant and those who aren't uh, are going to perish. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting um, when you, I can get my brain just twisted so tight it hurts, almost physically when you think about. Uh, the whole concept of God, Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. But then he turns right around and gives the charge, and I say turns right around, timing in writing the books are different, but <laughs> Jesus, you know, going to all the world, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And I'll be with you to the end of the age. I mean, God's got this whole thing so orchestrated that he's left it as our responsibility to be the witnesses. And yet, he knows exactly how it's going to come out. So, well, God, why don't you just do it? Well, don't ask that question of God. God's made it clear the few times people have had a chance to ask questions, that's inappropriate to ask questions of God. But that's how God has set this up. And so you see man's responsibilities both as witnesses and responsibility for his own sin, clearly in the scriptures. And you clearly see in the scriptures that God is control in the events in this world down to the smallest detail. When Jesus is talking about people who are worrying a lot, he says, God knows how many hairs are on your head, and if you lose a few today, he doesn't say it this far, but it would be true. If you lose a few today, he'll know the right number tomorrow as well. He's that involved in the details of our life. And so, um, God does lots of things. I've been through some difficult times of coming out the other end of it. I've said with some of the other people that went through it, that was terrible. It was difficult. It was painful. Heartbreaking. But if it was going to happen, I'm glad I was a part of it. Now, if we could have made it not happen, we would have, but that's just not the way life is. And I've seen God work in the most awful situations. And the only way you see God work in an awful situation is to go through an awful situation. That's how it is. Well, we better close. We're toward the end of our time. Father, It is not wrong for us, and we know it, to feel some responsibility for our contributions to this world and where it goes. But, Lord, let us never think our influence is significant compared to your direction. Thank you for giving us these words that we can trust in who you are and the places that you will take us in life, even when they're hard to understand, look evil, and are very, very unpleasant. 
Um, Lord, I, I know my own weakness. It scares me how weak I am when I think about what you might ask me to go through. Um, and so, Lord, let us go through with trust in who you are, depending upon your presence, minute by minute, day by day, not lamenting the loss of the things of this world, but only reveling in the eternity you've given us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.